0: Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, and on today's show, we first bring you a conversation between myself and Jonathan Porta, co-founder of Oots Market, a -a one-of-a-kind online market located in Guatemala, helping to connect artisans with buyers around the world. Then, on Upstream, where we talk all things culture, host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist on the Future of the Arts. If you're interested in any resources, books, articles, and more mentioned in today's episode, check them out in our show notes posted each Wednesday at blog.acting, A-C-T-O-N.org. Located in Antigua, Guatemala, Uts Market, meaning good market, is an online marketplace connecting artisans and local Guatemalan producers to buyers around the world, helping to create an economy that leads to sustainable development. They're dedicated to opportunity and not handouts, dignity over dependency and innovation over the status quo. I'm your host, Carolyn Roberts, and today I'm speaking with Jonathan Porta, who is the co-founder of Oots Market. John, thank you very much for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you, Caroline, for having me. It's a pleasure to
2: share with you guys.
0: So I got a little bit of a chuckle when I went onto the Oots Market website earlier today, and each of your team members has a, a description with a lot of personality in it <laughs> and under hey, your yes. name on Oots Market. It says, and I quote, that you continue to amaze with your random yet purposeful life history. A med student turned interpreter, turned corporate world minion, turned small business hustler. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the ideas behind Oots Market were born? Um, it seems like you may have helped start Oots in a bit of a roundabout way.
1: Yes, we actually did. Um, a lot of what happened was I started as an interpreter, as he says in, in my in my bio, and uh and in my career as an interpreter, I, I was always found between the misinterpretations or, or the miscommunications between the, the two cultures. I could see how both cultures and both parties were well-intended, but because of ignorance of, of cultural languages and cultural barriers, they would they would oftentimes fail in bringing the deliverables or bringing different uh, sustainable projects into into country. Of course, sustainability depends on a lot more than just a language barrier, but. In understanding these different things, I understood what the what people who are seeking for sustainable development are really intentionally looking for and how people who receive this uh, these aid and this support, how they're viewing their, their support and their help and how they respond to this, um, and, and also having a lot of artisan base in Guatemala and seeing the interaction that will coincidentally happen from the inter- intercultural exchange, how everyone wanted to somehow, one way or another, acquire goods that were made by these artists through the different projects that were that were being hosted. And when I, whenever they came back to me, because I was the interpreter, I was the middleman, they always came back to me always asking, can I take this back with me, or can you ship this to me? So it kind of served as a preamble to, to, to set up everything up after being voluntaries, after being being in corporations, we understood that we wanted to do things on our own because we understood enough the problematics that we were having, and we could understand very easily how we could be participants in facilitating these things and and provide a solution to these miscommunications.
0: The fact that you're in Guatemala makes you a little bit unique, too. Um, Guatemala, although having made economic and social progress since the 1996 Peace Accords, um, after a long guerrilla war, it's still known for its poverty and violence. Um, it's really deeply rooted in a history of social strife. The 2018 index of economic freedom from heritage tells us that quote more than half of the population still lives below the national poverty line guatemala remains a major drug trafficking transit country and gang violence continues to impede economic development so John, would you say that Oots market strategy of connecting artisans, you know Guatemalan producers to buyers everywhere is that pretty unique in Guatemala, and what kind of barriers have you had to work around
1: well when we when we start talking about economic growth in Guatemala, we have to understand, yes, the social conflicts which which are a a huge derivative from our internal conflict into internal civil war, but also Understanding that um, the legislation and the, local, and, the, and the way our legislation has been has been uh, progressing is essentially during the t- during the time that we had uh, war, we did not have any any legal accomplishments in terms of creating legislations that that would would allow new ways of commerce to come into 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 play. A lot of what has happened uh, lately is that we found that. Another statistic, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you have this one, but it's in the National Institute for Statistics, um, says that 69.9% of our population belongs to an informal economy. So when you're doing the, the math, you only have a 30% of the, of the population who's actually carrying the, 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 the fiscal uh, load or burden for the entirety of the population. That has brought a lot of social issues because we have very little mechanisms to allow small entrepreneurs and small economies to participate of the formality of the economy, leaving them outside because it's too expensive or because it's too bureaucratic or, it's, or sometimes they need to present a paper in an office that is probably 20 miles, 50 miles away from them. So it makes it unsustainable for them. So we try to find or meet the artisans and the entrepreneurs where they're at in their limited access and in their limited capabilities, and then we help them develop the necessary tools and, 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 and processes so that they can go beyond uh, the, the informality of economy that they have. So a lot of what we're trying to do with the with, the, with our business is to provide not only the tools for. Small entrepreneurs and artisans to access formality of economy, but also to, for us to help motivate and stimulate those economies that, unless they were able to, unless it's through an e-commerce model, they are not going to be able to participate or or grow more rapidly in their regular context. So a lot a lot of what we're doing as Foods is definitely focusing on e-commerce for entrepreneurs as a solution and a mitigation platform for poverty indicators and informality.
0: So you talk about e-commerce, and this kind of relates back to, I think, one of Oot's market's founding principles is that, you know, people dedicated to opportunity and not handouts and dignity over dependency, that is when we start to see people empowered and move out of poverty. Um, And e-commerce helps people do that. Yes. So... I was wondering, are the, were these founding principles kind of things that you were always aware of that helped people or were these kind of ideas that you slowly became, you know, that you slowly realized over time?
1: Um, I would dare to say that we approached our business understanding the goal and understanding that it, was, it wasn't a matter of, uh, of handouts or it wasn't a matter of people getting, getting access to, to money. Because sometimes it's not even money what they need; it's essentially just this, the fair advantage of making the, the decision and having the capacity to make a decision. If they choose to to sell something or to do one thing over the other, is because they had the power to choose. Unfortunately, because of our context, people don't have that power. They do because they have no other choice. To give you an example in terms of e-commerce, our our country lacks legislations to be able to provide. Um, transaction online transactions to happen in a very seamless way in in the US it takes you about three to five days tops to set up an account with uh, with a with a payment gateway in Guatemala there is no payment gateways and it will take you up to six months just to get a contract with a credit card company so when you start looking at these at these uh, differences you understand that even if people have the right product they don't have the right resources to sell it. They don't have the right mechanisms. Our postal service, the national postal service, shut down two years ago without having really a real understanding as to when they're going to start operating again, and that basically just leaves us with uh, big corporations who, who do shipping, but they are too big to actually be able to reach the last mile and reach the, 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 the artisans in the, in, the, in the rural areas. So that's where we found a lot of our sweet spot. understanding that our, our model wasn't being built for those who were already in commerce. Our model is being built for those who have not yet been able to partake of commerce so that we can transition them to a formality. So we always we've always understood the what, the how we worded it, I think was the one thing that has been taking a little more accurate or accuracy. In the last uh, few years, but I, I would dare to say that four years ago, when we first started this, um, we did decide to focus on a, on a sustainable development and cre- in a creative way that could allow inclusi- inclusiveness and uh, um, that would be inclusive and that would that would be focused on the small ones.
0: So Oots market is truly putting into motion the belief that real economic change comes from creating opportunities. Do you have any tangible stories of someone having kind of pulled themselves up out of poverty through this kind of empowerment?
1: We have a few, but uh, I would say there, there is one that I had the privilege to witness back when, when we were in our, on our non-for-profit um, ages. And, it was, and it's this, this uh, shoemaker who lives in a Guatemala City ghetto um, or um, slum which is one of the most dangerous ones in, in Guatemala. And uh, with them, we did, with this artisan, what we did was, was we helped him at the beginning in setting up a, a proper cost structure model so that whenever he started doing his costs, he would actually not leave anything under Luke. And we, because of, of things in life, we had to detach ourselves from the program and the NGO um, sadly, the NGO was not able to continue with the project that that they had started, and we had helped them start. But a few years later, when we came back to to this artist and knowing that he had the the, the skills and he had the product and he needed the help, we came back to him as oots trying to understand and pick up where we left. To our amazement, he he back when we started working with him, he had a a, a tin roof. Or, I mean, a, a tin house with uh, with a, food, a wooden floor. I mean, two two-story highs, and every time every time you would go into the second floor, you would feel that that thing would collapse, and you would fall through straight through to the floor, to the first floor. Three years later, we come back to this man's house, which is now a in the same in the same property. He's able to now have a four-story-high uh, building, cinder block made. Uh, first two buildings i mean he, he, he the first two floors are for him and his family and his mother, and then the last floors for for the last two floors are for his son and then the factory he 's starting with a shoemaker with the shoemaking uh, shoe process and a lot of what he what we found in him was that he wanted to share that benefit with everyone else. he understood how he grew because of of, of, uh, of being able to export and being able to offer products abroad and he wanted to share that benefit with others, so he was also he's also using factory as a prevention program for youth at risk who are currently living in this, on, the, on the streets in that, in that slum and are much more in touch and, and, and in proximity to drug trafficking and, and gangs. So like him, we have a few other stories of people who, who have been able to... I mean, his are most drastic because we have had enough time with him to validate a lot of the things. But other people that we're working with are... I mean, you can start seeing immediate results from from increasing revenues or just a simple new revenue stream that they didn't have before. Um, and we are a lot of what we're helping them understand is how to how to leverage the e-commerce model to complement and, and and increase their sales, not to shift the orientation of their business. So we still try to be very respectful respectful of what they're currently doing, trying to add more value to what they're doing. But essentially I mean like small artisans I can talk about two different brands and products that are in our marketplace who have never been able to sell abroad before and now because of oots they are selling abroad um, in a seamless and faster way. So we do have uh, success stories. I would say Zonoto is is, uh, is the most successful. This is not this is not a one hundred percent oots effort. I do I mean for all of our all of our success stories, there's always a huge component of the person we're working with, and also the circumstances that, that surround that person. Um, but it's an, another example as to why we always look at what is what are the assets in place so that we can build upon that case by case.
0: Well, I have one last question for you. When I go to Oots Market's website, a pop-up appears telling me that Oots is evolving and something different is coming. Is this maybe a rebrand? What can you tell us about what the horizon looks like for Oots?
1: Well, we, we understood that our original platform was too specific. Um, we understood that Guatemala needed, needed a platform like this one a lot more than we anticipated. So what we're doing right now is, yes, we are rebranding. Um, we will be launching a new platform in the following weeks, which is going to be called Mercadito.co, M-E-R-C-A-D-I-T-O dot C-O. And what we're trying to do with this new platform is to really open this up instead of it being a focus to artisans, which is what its Market currently has, we are now opening up the focus to entrepreneurship in Guatemala. So this will be the first entrepreneurial e-commerce platform in Guatemala. The idea is that this, or the, the, the plan is to continue expanding these platforms throughout the following years into the Central American countries, the bordering ones, and following through, then moving more towards the south into South America as well. Um, we're choosing, what we're trying to do is really understanding that our, that Latin America, we all have very similar circumstances and very similar histories. We also understand that even though the solutions may not be the same for all of us, they do have certain levels of, of, of similarities. So a lot of what we're doing right now is understanding that we're creating a model that not only can help Guatemala raise its people from um, underserved circumstances, but also many other countries within our region that are suffering from the same issues. Um, legislation issue, I mean, On the legislation front, we all have the same hurdles, so we're trying to really look at this at a regional level where we are trying to really bring more um, – we're trying to use business as a force of good in order to provide access to those who don't have access currently or have very restricted access. But when you're when you're looking at circumstances, and, I mean, just the, the context today, we understand that we're not only talking about uh, artisans anymore or rural or rural economies anymore. We're talking about entrepreneurship in general. In our countries, you become an entrepreneur because you cannot find a job and you have no other choice than to than to try to get creative and try to try to validate um, or make, a, a, make a, an honest living through whatever skills you have. So unfortunately, that's, that's, that's more the rule than the exception in these countries. And that's what we're trying to do is to help them visualize that, help them understand what assets they have and what skills they have, and then help them understand how they can build a, a life, a, a, um, build a life based on that as well. Providing them with uh, with exposure and channels to be able to commerce
0: this. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today, John.
1: Thank you very much, and I appreciate the time.
0: In the face of fiscal irresponsibility, soaring deficits, sweeping new healthcare regulations, and an uncontrollable national debt, the Acton Institute offers a fresh and unique perspective. For over 28 years, the Institute has worked to connect economic freedom, free enterprise and entrepreneurship with a vibrant Judeo-Christian moral culture. Please join Reverend Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of Acton Institute and other supporters and friends of Acton on the evening of Tuesday, October 2 at the Duquesne Club in picturesque downtown Pittsburgh for a cocktail reception followed by dinner and a special keynote address. Register now at acton.org slash events to save your spot at this popular event.
3: hello and welcome to this week's edition of upstream i'm your host bruce edward walker and today i'm talking with david marcus who is the federalist new york correspondent he is also the artistic director of blue box world a brooklyn-based theater project and his plays have been seen on the stages of galapagos art space d lounge and theater double rep he's a former member of the bat acting company at the flea theater And that's Bat Acting Company, not Bad Acting Company. And you can follow him on Twitter at Blue Box Dave. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Terrific. Well, uh, it came across the transom that you participated in a Smithsonian State of the Arts in America conversation. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, it was a, it's a, it's through a, uh, Thing the Smithsonian has called uh, second opinion. And the secretary of the Smithsonian, David Scorton, uh, set this up, I guess, about a year and a half ago, and they do it quarterly. What they do is they take an issue. In the past, they've done immigration. I think they've done climate change as well. Uh, and they gather four panelists to come in to do a discussion that goes out on their online platform. Uh, and then he also goes and does some other interviews uh, and they put some resources together and it's actually it's 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 a pretty neat uh it's a pretty neat website that they offer people can go to smithsoniansecondopinion.org and see uh see all of those conversations uh and this one was this is the latest one and it is about the uh state of the arts uh in the United States and really what what Scorton's trying to do is is uh, i guess he He's relatively new to the office, and I think he came in at a time when discourse was already starting to look a, a little toxic in the United States, and he's really trying to, to create a situation where people can, you know, have a, an open, honest conversation, disagree sometimes with, uh, you know, with goodwill, and, and I, I think he, he pretty much succeeds in doing that.
3: Well, uh, some of the topics that uh, have been brought up, that were brought up in the uh, conversation, uh, included political neutrality in the arts, uh, what role the government should play in funding the arts, and what the state of arts is today and how the arts can be useful in an increasingly tech-heavy world. So uh, tell us a, a little bit, uh, w- w- what did you have to say? And, and I, I know some of the other participants uh, included uh, Rebecca Rabinow, who is director of the Merrill Collection in Houston, and a, uh, a couple of other individuals, and I'm not even going to try to say their names because I'll mangle them terribly. Yeah,
2: no, the other participants, uh, Peter Sheldahl has been the senior art critic at The New Yorker since 1998. He's a very old-school uh, New York visual art scene guy. And then Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons is a, uh artist and a professor. I always forget where she teaches. I think Vanderbilt. she's at Vanderbilt. But I, yes. Yeah, um, and she teaches studio art there. Uh, so it was, a, you know, it was an interesting mix. My background was in theater, so the the rest of them were a little more uh, visual art based. But, you know, as as came up in the in the panel, all of the arts are are facing some of the same issues in terms of you know, trying to attract an audience and, um, uh, you know, how to how to pay for itself, all those things. So, um, yeah, I mean, as th- the first question about neutrality, I think we all sort of agreed that. There's probably no such thing in the real world. Um, I think a couple of my—it was interesting. On a lot of things, Peter and I, the guy from the New Yorker, ended up on a slightly with a slightly different opinion um, uh, from the two women who were more inside the art world. Um, And in regard to that that question of neutrality, I mean, look, there's a there's a kind of condescension and elitism. Uh, in the museum world, in, in the art world. It's very coastally based. Um, so some of those questions came up. And, you know, one of the things that, as an artist that I've tried to do uh, is is really, whenever possible, draw from the rest of the country. Um, and that was one of the things. I, I think political neutrality is, is probably impossible in the arts, but um, uh, there, there is there is a problem that, that, that it's so centered. Uh, in New York and Los Angeles and, and places where certain political and cultural views, especially religious views really don't get a fair playing.
3: How do you mean that religious views don't get a, uh, a fair view?
2: I, I think that, uh, you know, speaking in, 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 terms of theater, uh, it would be very easy to get, in fact, it is very easy to, to get say a, a play that's very sympathetic to, um, a pro choice viewpoint past the goalie. Um, it would probably be pretty easy to get that past the the goalie uh, at an art museum. I, I think that if you were trying to do the reverse, you'd have a very hard time. Uh, and it, it really is because the art world in general is so overwhelmingly um, progressive. I mean, in theater, I used to make the joke that if you think Hollywood is is – liberal the the new york theater world makes hollywood look like the national <laughs> review um, and it really does I, I i mean you know all of this stuff whether it be privilege theory or microaggressions ag- like like all of these all of these things they were emerging in the theater and the art world seven eight nine years before anybody in the in the general media had heard about it
3: well there you go again you're the typical new yorker who says that the rest of the country is behind new york
2: well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> I only say it because it's true. But you know, right, but, okay. but, hey, it wasn't just in New <laughs> sure York; it was, it was also on college campuses. But but the arts is right next to college campuses, and maybe even a little before college campuses is is where you start to see some some of this stuff. And there's a reason for it. There's a there's a, a phenomenon I call the cultural ground game, uh, and it's based on the concept of the political ground game. Right in, in a political campaign, you have TV ads, debates, the the big top line things. Underneath that, you have your ground game, a lot of people who are volunteers, right, knocking on doors, do, you know, handing out flyers. And any politician will tell you that that ground game is vitally important. The arts also have a ground game. Uh, you know, the, people don't drop into um, writing important movies and TV shows uh, and you know, getting Tonys and Emmys from nowhere. They're developed through this ground game. And one interesting thing about the artistic ground game is it's almost entirely not-for-profit. So you have this three-legged stool. You've got uh, the academy, first and foremost, um, because now most artists are coming through college, which wasn't true 50, 60 years ago. So first of all, they're going through the academy, most of them. Then you have not-for-profit granting organizations who are the organizations who are giving this money to arts organizations to do what they do. And they give a lot more money to institutions that prefer, say, a pro-choice perspective than a pro-life one. And three, you have the not-for-profit producing organizations. And those are the people who are actually going out there, putting the art out there, and of course not having to recoup, not having to actually make any money or float, you know, or even stay even because this these outside forces of money, both governmental and, and corporate and uh, private donations are what keeps them afloat. And that ground game is where all of the content creators are being produced. And it's all three of those worlds that I that I just described as the three legs of the stool are incredibly progressive worlds. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've got some familiarity with, with all three. Um, conservatives don't have any <clears throat> way into that. Uh, at least not yet. Conservatives have not found a way to develop their own content creators in the way that progressives have used this cultural ground game to really create a uh, hegemony over culture.
3: So, okay, well, let's, what did the other participants have, have to say about that? I mean, did they, they fess up that uh, the art world is pretty much progressive?
2: Yeah, uh, more or less. I, You know, I, I think that's that's just sort of, patently obvious and, and we didn't get too much into uh you know direct electoral politics um and i you know i sort of made the the point that i don't think art is particularly effective one way or the other in regard to uh who people vote for uh, art's much more effective in in shaping broader cultural trends uh in in one direction or the other but i i thought it was interesting one thing i didn't expect was that um steldahl the guy from the new yorker Uh, when we got into this idea of public funding and we got into the idea of um, arts organizations existing based on grants rather than ticket sales or audience or whatever, he was very sympathetic to my views and and actually pointed out uh, that when that started to hit in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it had a really profound impact on the art world where it became much more bureaucratic uh, it became much more about uh, pleasing gatekeepers and much less about um, uh, pleasing your audience. I, I think in general, the arts have lost sight of the the fact that, um, you know, you don't need to be an expert to consume them um, and that there was throughout American history up until about that point, this really deep thirst that, you know, just average working Americans had to, you know, have the great books, to, to show up at a museum when a Van Gogh was going to be in town, you know, that that this is, this isn't something that needs to be spoon-fed, and now we are sort of saying, well, like, you know, our, our betters will decide what we see, as opposed to having a more direct relationship uh, with the arts world, and really, what it's just led to is, is decline in participation.
3: And so let's move along to uh, the last topic that was addressed in... The Smithsonian's second opinion and how the arts can be useful in an increasingly tech-heavy world. I mean, who needs Shakespeare when you can uh, watch YouTube all day long?
2: Well, we do. Um, everybody does, and frankly, the tech companies do as well. You know, part of what we got into in that is, um, you know, we're we're at a at a point uh, with tech now where there are some really scary developments going on in terms of biohacking, um, things like genetic manipulation, things where tech companies are now going to be able to, to sort of fidget with literally what it means to be a human being. And if you're going to deal with uh, frightening issues like that, you need artists and you need writers and, and you need thinkers. The, the analogy that I gave during the panel was to, to George Orwell. Orwell, you know, 50, 60 years ago, was able to point to a lot of the threats in regard to information technology, and in regard to what sources you can trust, and in regard to uh, totalitarianism. Um, he was able to, to sort of see ahead of the curve because artists deal in this creative world of ideas. They, they don't have to be locked down by what's happening right now. And we still use Orwell's ideas to, to try to keep ourselves in check. So we need Shakespeare, uh, you know, to remind us of what it means to be a human being. We need Orwell um, to tell us what the, the limits of government should be and, and uh, how we should deal with this constant media all around us. And we're going to need the artists who are coming up now uh, to tell us stories about ourselves so that we don't lose sight of our... Uh, essential humanity because really for the first time in human history that's that's a
3: legitimate risk well terrific david marcus thank you so much for joining us today Oh, thanks for having me. David Marcus is the Federalist New York correspondent and is also the artistic director of Blue Box World, a Brooklyn based theater project. His plays have been seen on the stages of Galapagos Art Space, D Lounge, and Theater Double Rep. He's a former member of the BAT Acting Company at the Flea Theater and has performed at the Kennedy Center and Theater for Newton City, among many others. His work has also appeared in National Review Online, The New York Times, City Journal, PJ Media, Liberty Island, and the New York Theater Review. He's, he's a terrific writer. You can see the video, and we'll put a link at the, the bottom of this to where you can see David in action with uh, his fellow panel members at the Smithsonian. I'd like to thank my listeners, and I'd like to thank my producer, Caroline Roberts, my executive producer, John Caritas, And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening today. If you want to reach our podcast team here at the Acton Institute, you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at Rfaacton.org. Let your friends and family know that they can now listen to Radio Free Acton on their favorite podcast app or directory, along with Spotify and YouTube. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, and edited by Nathan Moore.